Welcome to episode 14 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. I don't need to tell you that we're now back in lockdown until December the 2nd at the earliest, so we're not exactly able to break out and go and see things at the moment. But in a highly optimistic spirit, we're going to carry on focusing on what theatres, galleries and museums have planned for December and beyond. And we're going to be mixing it up with all the things we can do at home. So this week, we're going to start by talking about a book. The book is the Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes. So it's therefore highly academic and official. <laughs> but fear not, it is be, it's been written by one of the funniest men on the planet, Giles Brandreth. He needs no introduction, but just to remind you, he's a writer, a broadcaster, an actor, and most importantly of all, as far as I'm concerned, a former Conservative MP. As any regular Radio 4 listener will know, any conversation with Giles is guaranteed to be fun and deliciously entertaining. I hope you've got that, Giles. Here you are. Cheer us all up. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Ed, for that lovely introduction. It's lovely to be with you both. And uh, congratulations on your podcast, which I think uh, is worthy of an award. Um, Susie Dent <laughs> and I achieved an award this year's Best Entertainment Podcast of 2020. No we, in, we, we, well, we, you, you didn't enter. Um, I don't think you'd have been eligible. You're so young and new. But the point is, we won't be able to enter next year because it would be bad form to enter two years running. So I shall be voting for you. But the reason for this book, why you're right for this book to be a kind of breakout book, is one of, for me, one of the real tragedies of this pandemic has been the lack of live theatre. Uh, yeah. I really have, have felt that. And we need, I mean, theatre is so different from film and television. I mean, I've watched some wonderful stuff in the last six months. But gosh, have I missed live theatre, where where it's different at every performance, where there is something, there is something between the audience and what's happening on stage. And that is gone. And really, the reason that I brought out this book now is because people can't, on the whole, go to a normal theatrical experience. Some theatres are beginning to sort of creep back. But normal theatre, as we know it, has disappeared for the time being. And so what I've done is create a book 800 pages long. It sends you to sleep, I mean, literally, because my, <laughs> my wife was in bed last night. It fell back on her face. She was concussed. Um, <laughs> but it gives you, it gives you scenes from the world of theatre over 500 years, from the time of Shakespeare to the present day. And I've been collecting, I suppose, theatre anecdotes since about 1960, when I was a little boy, and I went to see my first Romeo and Juliet at the Old Vic Theatre in the Waterloo Road, starring the young Judy Dench. It was almost her breakout moment, her Juliet. And she was barely out of her teens, and it was a production by Franco Zeffirelli, and uh, it was wonderful. And I remember the production so vividly because Judy Dench ran onto the stage, her opening line as the young Juliet. She ran towards the nurse, the nurse played by an actress called Peggy Mount. And as she reached the nurse, she spoke her opening line, Judy Dench. She said, where are my mother and my father, nurse? And a voice from the third row of the stalls called out, here we are, darling, Rosie. <laughs> And oh, years, years later, when I met Judy Dench, I told her this story. She said, it's true. It really happened. And I think from that <laughs> moment onwards, whenever I've gone to the theatre, I've expected the unexpected. Now, we could be here all day because you've you, you produced this 800-page book of theatrical anecdotes. And you say you've produced it in time, as it were, as an antidote to um, 
COVID, but it must have been years in yes. the preparation. Yes. And there are hundreds and hundreds of anecdotes. And in fact, if I was giving an after dinner speech, I'd probably raid it for some anecdotes, which I would pretend were entirely mine. And like your children, it's impossible, I know, for you to pick out your favourite. But I know you're very keen on the Peter Bowles, Albert Finney. Oh, yes, I might tell you that one. I might tell you that one. I ought to, <laughs> before, before I do, I ought to give credit where it's due. It is a huge book, and I've been you working on it. You had a researcher? No, I didn't have a researcher. Well, oh. I worked on it with my wife. Okay. But I did have research opportunities over many years with a wonderful actor called Sir Donald Sindon. Do you mm. remember Donald Sindon? Yes, indeed, yes. Fr Fruity-voiced, old-school actor, but so versatile and such a lovely human being. And he took seriously the theatrical anecdotage. He believed it was a heritage that had to be handed on from one generation to the next. And he introduced me to all sorts of stories. He also is the reason I speak the way I do, because... I was at school, my best friend at school was an actor called Simon Cadell, and his father was an agent, and his father's, the agent's most famous client was Donald Sindon. So I met Donald Sindon when I was quite young, and he taught me about diction. He said to me, when it comes to diction, Giles, you must remember that vowels are what give you volume, but it's consonants that give you clarity. Vowels of a volume, consonants for clarity. And he gave me a little exercise, which I will share with both of you, because, Ed, I know you're still making speeches and, indeed, still using material from other people's books without acknowledging it, but I don't mind that. I never did um, <laughs> when we were together years ago. Um, I won't mind now. But you've got to get the diction right. Vowels for volume, consonants for clarity. This is the exercise that Donald Sindon taught me. He would stand in his dressing room before the performance and repeat the following. Hip, bath, hip, Bath, lavatory, lavatory, bidet, bidet, douche. <laughs> and it works wonders. So it's hip bath, hip bath, lavatory, lavatory, bidet, bidet, douche. I'm going to, before my yes. next speech in the chamber of the House of Lords, I will yeah, stand right. in the Prince's it Gallery in front of the doorkeepers and you must. do my exercises. I've read so many wonderful um uh, biographies during this book. I mean, and all, every day somebody comes up with a, a new story for me that I uh, that I feel, oh, I wish I'd include that, you know, uh, which I've been able to include that. But what I've tried, though, to include are stories that really illustrate the nature of theatre, to give you a flavour of what theatre people are like and what theatre life is like. One of the things that I did, did become clear to me as I was working on this book is that nothing has changed. Every generation of actors thinks that the last generation was too theatrical. Every generation thinks it has invented naturalism, which makes <laughs> me laugh. Um, I also discovered in this book who invented the word lovey. Different people are given credit who, for it. Who, who, it who turns did? out to be James Villiers, an actor oh, I knew. Um, Jimmy Villiers, wonderful actor. Not, okay. not due to Buckingham. Uh, well, no, a descendant of the Duke of Buckingham. Yes, he was a, a natural uh, aristo. Um, yes, this is a story that Peter Bowles tells, and he explains that confidence is almost 80% of what's needed for star quality, you know, uh, plus a bit of talent, of course. And uh, his teacher was Albert Finney. And one night in their dressing room, they were discussing what part they'd most like to play because they were... They were students together. They shared dressing rooms, but also they, they shared a flat together. And they both had the same ambition, 
that when they left Rada, they've got to become professional actors. And they both most wanted to play Macbeth, the Scottish play. We're allowed to mention it now. It would be bad luck if we were within a theatre. And Albert asked uh, Peter how he would approach the part. And, of course, Peter went on about uh, Scottish history and the possibility of playing with a Scottish accent, probably in a kilt, and how he'd study all the great scholars and try and get into the mood. And obviously he'd read people like Granville Barker and all the rest of it. And then he said, how would you approach it, Albert? And Albert Finney replied, I'd learn the fucking lines and walk on. <laughs> so there are, there are there, I'm afraid there are rude there are a few rude words yes I'm sorry but I think that is the first time somebody's said that word it has I know but shocked. I think it's going to take us <laughs> it's going to take us to another level and I think your sort of sweary nature explains why a hundred thousand people a week listen to your podcast they're just waiting for the F word to drop between you and Susie Dent. You know, when I was young and I first played Hamlet, many, many, many years ago, I was far too young for the part, I wasn't any good, and the critics were, were terribly unkind, and the audience didn't just shout at me. Uh, they actually came prepared and they threw eggs at me. No. So I no. Yeah, no, no, seriously. Where, where was this? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, yes. I went on as Hamlet, came off as Omelette. That was terrible. <laughs> but, but Donald Sindon... Donald Sindon, I'll just tell you one more Donald Sindon story. I know, because you've got other distinguished guests who've got to come on. I've got to shut up. Um, but waiting, uh, Donald, they've, they've got their eggs ready. They're waiting to come on. They're chafing it a bit. I know, and you've got a hook ready to pull me off. But, but Donald Sindon told me how, when he played Hamlet, he was very, he was again very young, and he didn't quite know what the relationship was between Hamlet and Ophelia. It's quite opaquely written, it's not clear. And he went to see one of the older men in the company, an old actor who was then playing the part of Polonius, but had himself played Hamlet many years before. And he said to this old actor, Tell me, what do you think's going on between Hamlet and Ophelia? How intimate are they? How close are they? I mean, are, are they lovers? Uh, it's not clear from the text. Do, do you think, does Hamlet sleep with Ophelia? And the old actor replied, Well, I don't know about the West End, laddie, but we always did on tour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Now, talking about on tour, can you just quickly tell us about your one-man sell-out show, Break a Leg? And yes. Mm. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, the plan is... I mean, this year has been pretty disastrous in the sense that it was going to begin for me with Judy Dench because we were going to do a show together at the Bridge Theatre called I Remember It Well, which was a, to be a celebration of her career, me chatting with Dame Judy about her extraordinary life. And it would have been sensational. The tryouts we did were sensational. But literally, the, our opening night coincided with the first day of lockdown. Oh, no. Then I was due to go on tour. That was postponed once, then twice, and now... It's due to begin next April. 31 dates around the country. And you do need a proper theatre. I've done... I went the other day to appear to talk about this book, in fact, at the Yvonne Arno Theatre, which I love, in Guildford. And we did a socially distanced performance. They said, you're a sellout, you're a sellout. My wife had told me I'd sold out years ago, but this was different. They said, you're, you're, you're a sellout. And I walked onto the stage quite excited and then realised, of course, a sellout meant that 80% of the seats were empty. Uh, that social distancing meant that 20% were full. And it's quite disconcerting, and it's difficult to do. And, of course, economically, it isn't viable. And um, so we just must um, pray that we can get back to normal theatre as soon as possible. And my hope is that from April next year, I will be on tour again. And basically, it's a two-hour show where I 
celebrate the the great people that I have known in that I've been lucky enough to know. Some of them, when I was an MP, I brought to Westminster, and they were quite intrigued. I remember on his 90th birthday, the great Sir John Gielgud, the great classical actor of the 20th century, came to have lunch with me and Glenda Jackson. Uh, Glenda Jackson was an MP at the time, and we gave him lunch on his 90th birthday, and we said to him when he arrived, age 90, ramrod posture. What a man he was, actually. He was a curious mixture of a, a kind of uh, Edwardian dandy and a Roman senator. There was something louche and grand about him at the same time. And we said to him, Sir John, we are so honoured that you, the great classical actor of the 20th century, should choose to come and have luncheon with us on your 90th birthday. He said, oh, my dears, I'm delighted. You see, all my real friends are dead. <laughs> so it's a celebration of people I've known and of live theatre and the good news is this. The theatres in this country have been closed before. They were closed briefly, though not as long as this during the Second World War. They were closed during the plague periods of earlier times. Some people think that King Lear was written during the plague year of 1606 when the Globe and the other London theatres were closed. But when they were closed for the longest time, it was during the uh, reign of Oliver Cromwell, during the Commonwealth. For 16 years, Cromwell didn't seem to have much sense of humour, didn't like people to laugh, smile, or certainly go to the theatre. The theatres were closed. But when they reopened, there was laughter across the land. That's well, that restoration when, comedy. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, when yeah. restoration comedy was born. Yes. So my hope is that when... Uh, the theatres do reopen, we shall have a burst of laughter that will last for decades. Oh, what a lovely note to end on, Giles. Thank you so much. That's well, marvellous. Thank, <laughs> thank you so much for the privilege of taking part. Now we want to turn to a story about arts cheers us up this week. Messam's on Cork Street, founded in 1963, is one of London's oldest galleries with a reputation for specialising in Edwardian, Victorian and British Impressionist painting. But since the 60s, the Messam Empire has spread and spread. David Messam now has a sculpture garden and gallery at Lordswood in Buckinghamshire, and his son Johnny runs Messam's Wiltshire, a multi-purpose gallery and art centre in a 40, 13th century barn in Disbury, which also has an outpost in London's Cork Street. Yes, and in recent years, Johnny has become the champion of ceramics, exhibiting ceramic artists from all over the world and teaming up with the Koch Foundation in Turkey to mount the biggest show of ceramics ever in Istanbul, displaying 13 European artists from seven countries. But what's particularly extraordinary about Messam's is that it opened two new galleries right in the heart of the last lockdown. David Messam opened a new gallery in St. James's in April and Johnny opened Messam's Harrogate. So we decided to get Johnny on our podcast to explain to all the art dealers out there who've been forced to close their doors again, just how he keeps going and expanding. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Charlotte. Good morning to you. So tell us how you've done it. How are you planning to conquer this lockdown? What is the Messam's <laughs> secret? Well, I think the first thing, I think there's no conquering at all. I think the first thing is survival um, to get to get through because it's a, it's an, it's a, um, incredibly uh, challenging time and, and, and very, very fluid. But I think one thing that is universal in all of this is how important art is to us as uh, individuals. That's you know outside of us as a immediate gallery concern, but us as a community and having it in our lives is of absolutely primary importance. So, if you like, where we've had to close our doors, we are looking to 
go online. Um, and that's a very interesting concept when you think about art as a physical object, but easier when you, you take it as an object which is the start point for conversations. And once you have that in your mind, it becomes a fantastic way for people to engage with each other. As we all know, when we have had the pleasure of going to stand in front of physical paintings or sculptures in galleries and museums throughout the world, we are almost universally with uh, an opinion. We either like it or we dislike it, but we certainly have an emotional response to it. And so uh, in that way, art's such a great way to keep us all connected in some way, shape or form. And the digital platform seems like the ideal way, to my mind, uh, for us all to do that. So um, that's what we've set out to do. And we've launched an online conversations tomorrow, I think it is, but with our first talk with Rebecca Rag sites on Neanderthal art. And uh, to that point, we are sending out briefing notes uh, for those who'd like to join us uh, ahead of time so that um, there's a fantastic book, obviously, which Rebecca's published in the same time. Um, and a resume of the conversation will be available for everybody who's joining us online. But you haven't just got uh, Rebecca on, have you? You've got plans to have Lloyd Grossman on, who's been on this podcast, and Isabella yes, Tree. Cool. Remind everyone who Isabella Tree is. Well, she's written she's written one of the formative books on on, on environmentalism and rewilding, which I think is such a great topic. Uh, and um, so, yeah, how could you be better placed to tell us uh, about rewilding? And uh, we're focusing on the environment for, to that point in January. I mean, it's not just a sort of come and go topic. This environment is central, I think, to all of our uh, our minds and art as a uh, metaphor, if you like, for our, our concerns and emotions and also a way of starting dialogue um, sits very centrally at that. So there's a lot of artists very concerned about that. We've got exhibitions online, obviously, in January, which coincide with that. And we're bringing together a panel of Experts, including um, Ollie Steeds, uh, who runs something called Necton, uh, which are a deep sea uh, exploration uh, charity. They're one of the Earthshot nominees um, to talk about the underground biosphere and people like Isabella Tree to talk about the overground biosphere. So what's happening on the rewilding? Uh, and we're hoping to get Ben Goldsmith to come and tell us about what he's doing as well. Well, I think one of the things um, Ed and I have talked a lot about on this podcast is how galleries really need to raise their game in the way they display art online, you know, because so often they just do these dodgy, wobbly camera tours that can end up being much more frustrating than illuminating. But I've noticed that you've started to use a drone to tour your very beautiful Wiltshire barn, and it really does give a sense of it. So... Um, Tell us a bit more about your plans for that. This goes back to the first lockdown where we were thinking about our current exhibitions. Obviously, our first concern was with our artists to see how they were. And a lot of them had put many, many years and hours into their into their work. Um, and so these were shows which were palpably going to be cancelled. And we thought, well, that's such a shame. Um, so working within safe guidelines, obviously, we put together the exhibitions online, um, sorry, physically, in the gallery space and and then uh, shot them using virtual uh, you know virtual footage um, and yeah I'm not gonna lie it was pretty amateur uh, to start with uh, I think it was just uh, a couple of people one being pulled on a chair uh, <laughs> and a camera in hand uh, so uh, so I don't think we're gonna be challenging James Cameron anytime short but the um, it's a really lovely way of seeing what's going on I think physically if you can't be in the space it's the next best thing I guess so David Messam is your father. 
David Messam is my father, that's correct. And he opened his first gallery in 1963, and he's just opened one in 2020. I mean, I hate to be blunt, but how old is he? <laughs> so he's, now you've got me, he's a, he's born 1943, so, so he's so he 80, first 80, gallery 80. when he was 20. I mean, that is pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. He did, absolutely right. He's been, uh, that was in uh, Born End, and we've had galleries as a family for uh, for many years now. Well, he sounds like an absolutely remarkable man. He definitely is. You need him on this programme. It's always been a harmonious relationship. It's not like the art world equivalent of succession. Um, I, well, I think I think yeah, um, there's a there's a there's a good uh, healthy evolution, shall we say? Uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> uh, Very diplomatic. Yeah, uh, and. Um, so no, I think I think you know we've we've secured the future for for the business. I think crucially also for our artists. Don't forget because you know their lives and careers start with us at different stages, and so knowing where they go in the years to come uh, is important. And in, and knowing also for our clients to know, um, you know that the artists that they're investing in um, have a long term uh, platform as well. All of which I think is very important. Brilliant. Well, that was the super inspiring and energetic Johnny Messam. And we'll put all the details of how you can visit his virtual exhibitions at the barn in Wiltshire and at his new gallery in Harrogate on our website, where you'll also find details of how to join those conversations that we were hearing about. But now before we go, we just thought that as we're back staying in again, we'd talk a bit about TV. Charlotte, what are you watching? Well, I'm watching The Undoing. Which so am I'm- I. <laughs> I am loving it. I, I subscribe I, to Now TV just to watch it. I know it's pretty good, isn't it? I Hugh Grant what they wanted me to do. <laughs> Hugh Grant is completely exceptional and just gets better and better as an actor. And he's so chilling. And the plot, I'm. It's very exciting that you're only allowed to watch one episode at a time, because um, we've got so spoilt and used to binging on box sets. But I rather like the cliffhanger thing of having to wait till the next week. So Hugh Grant plays uh, a rich Manhattan but English uh, child cancer specialist and he is married to Nicole Kidman who is a glamorous psychologist and Nicole's father is obviously a rich billionaire played by Donald Sutherland and they have this lovely uh, Upper West Side life and it all goes wrong when another parent at the school is murdered. And uh, it all starts to unravel, which is why I think it's called The Undoing. Perhaps it should be called The Unraveling. But we're only two episodes in, but it's already gripping. It ends with a cliffhanger uh, in each episode. And the young mother who is murdered is played by a breakout Italian actress. Called Matilda De Angelis. And she really is gorgeous, isn't she? She's she's just got... Well, I can't say that. You can say that. <laughs> I can say that. She's got this luminous, quite scary, predatory quality. And the more you watch, the more you realise it's well worth being wary of her. It really is good. So we love that one. And I'm also watching, I did, well, I have also watched Roadkill, which is available, obviously. Oh, yes. Written by the ghastly David Hare, <laughs> but I still watch it. It was absolutely kind of sixth form politics stuff about how the evil Tories we trying to privatise the NHS. That was one plot line. Oh, the other one was that prisons were falling apart because of privatisation. And uh, it was so badly scripted that after the fourth episode, I said to my wife, you know, should we watch another episode of Roadkill? And she said, no, it's over. It's finished. 
I mean, talk about a damn squib of an ending. It was absolutely, I don't know why people keep commissioning this guy, but there you oh, go. Oh, anyway, dear. Was still, because obviously I'm a Tory MP, ex-Tory MP, so anything that involves politics and British politics, I watch anyway, but anyway. But Hugh Laurie is very good, as he always is in it, isn't he? Um, I'm not so sure about Helen McCrory as the Prime Minister. That seemed a bit forced um, and improbable, but I thought Hugh Laurie was worth watching and always is fab cheekbones helen mccrory yes she does yes <laughs> now the other thing i've started watching which is really quite interesting is adult material on which you can see on more four it's about the porn industry it stars hayley squires and there's an incredible appearance by rupert everett as a very old porn king complete with yes well i haven't watched because obviously I don't approve. <laughs> I, I thought when you first put it on our list, it was, it was a documentary. It's, it's a not, drama. It's a drama. It's a drama. And Rupert Everett's just marvellous, complete with sort of snakeskin loafers and long brocade dressing gown and long white hair. He really is, you know, it's just, he's so wonderful to watch, isn't he? And just, he just does that. Well, I wouldn't know. I haven't watched it. Well, he is wonderful to watch in anything else that I've seen. But um, I'm definitely going to uh, watch adult material now. He gave a wonderful talk at Hay uh, a couple of years ago when we were all down there for the country and townhouse sellout event but I sloped off at the end to watch Rupert Everett and he was absolutely mesmerizing. He's such an impressive chap. So there's that and then one last thing I just think would cheer everybody up is something called Better Things and it's written by and starring Pamela Adlon. It's on BBC iPlayer even though it's American. It's blissfully short. It's a quick American commercial half hour so it's about 23 minutes long an episode and it's about a divorced actress bringing up three daughters on her own and anyone who has teenage daughters will just laugh and laugh and laugh seeing this because Every time you despair of your daughter's rudeness, there it is on screen. You're not alone. And the way she deals with it is just marvellous. It's really, really heartwarming and fun. I am definitely going to watch uh, that. Um, I'm watching, talk about, uh, I'm watching Big Little Lies, which also stars Nicole Kidman, which is a bit passe. I think it was last year. It was the hot food. But the other one that I'm watching, it's not the last thing, is Queen's Gambit, which is a brilliant Netflix drama about a female chess prodigy who's uh, in an orphanage and discovers through the janitor that she is a brilliant at chess. And it is absolutely just gripping. It's set in the 60s. It's as usual with Netflix, money is no object. So the attention to detail is absolutely astonishing. Uh, it's utterly gripping, and apparently, you know, chess apps, the downloading of chess apps have gone uh, through the roof. I mean, it's very interesting how Netflix not only produces these unbelievable quality dramas, but it's also interesting that in the world of streaming, I mean, we've talked about The Undoing, we're talking now about Queen's Gambit, at least I am, uh, that they still present these kind of water cooler moments. So lots of people, you know, because although they can't see each other, I'm sure they're WhatsApping each other, are talking about how much they're loving the undoing. And lots of people, I came to Queen's Gambit because I just kept seeing people saying, you know, what are you watching during lockdown? Everyone said, oh, you've got to watch the Queen's Gambit. So they create these kind of water cooler moments that everyone loves. So you're going to watch the Queen's Gambit. I'm going to watch yes. Better Thing. Yes. And add um, material. Yes, brilliant. And we'll come together in a Venn diagram over the undoing and we've dismissed roadkill. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, obviously, as well as TV, we're all going to need more books this lockdown. We're already armed with Giles Brandreth's enormous tome of theatrical anecdotes. But if you're having trouble making up your minds what to read next, we suggest you tune in to the Books Are My Bag Readers Awards. They're on YouTube on the 10th of November at 5.30pm. You'll be able to see all the links on our website. And they're hosted by the wonderful Grace Dent. They're the only awards created by bookshops and chosen by readers, so there's sure to be some great recommendations there. We'll keep you posted about the winners next week. That's all we've got time for this week. Please don't forget to tune into our website, countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter for all of our latest What's On news, plus access to our monthly news from Great British Brands and our newly launched Great British Brands Christmas Gift Guide. <laughs> and don't forget to listen in to our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette, which brings you her interviews from the world of interiors and design. Please come back next week when we promise to cheer up your November lockdown by bringing you lots of ideas for things to look forward to and things to do from your sofa. Thank you for listening and goodbye. 